This is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Today, we're talking about what do you do when you're asked to overlook unethical or illegal behavior at your place of employment, or when you're expected to participate in it. Specifically, we're talking about the two whistleblowers involved in the high-profile Theranos case. But first, let me introduce the team here. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn. With me is wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Marna. Hi, Mike. Hi, everybody. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Hi, Mike. Good morning, Marna, and good morning, Kelly. Hello to both of you and to our listeners. We always love to hear from you. Inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com is our email. Our goal here is to offer insights and perspectives on sticky situations so you can examine your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. So let me offer a little bit of context on Theranos before we launch into this complicated topic. Theranos was the celebrated startup led by CEO Elizabeth Holmes, which promised to revolutionize healthcare by being able to run up to 200 tests on a single drop of blood with a portable blood analyzer. The company was valued as high as $9 billion before it collapsed in scandal. In 2015, Wall Street Journal published a well-researched article by John Carreyrou, which questioned the validity of Theranos' technology and claims. This article was the basis of his later book called Bad Blood. The company then faced challenges from medical authorities, investors, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, state attorneys general, former business partners, patients, and others. Following indictments of Elizabeth Holmes and president of the company Sonny Balwani, Theranos ceased operations on September 4th, 2018. In November of 2022, Elizabeth Holmes was convicted of four counts of lying to Theranos investors about the company's technology and its financial health. She's been sentenced to 11 years and three months in federal prison for her role in committing a years-long fraud. She begins serving her sentence on April 27, 2023. So that's coming up. So there's some background on Theranos, but what's really intriguing is that two junior employees, Tyler Schultz and Erica Chung, were the ones who raised concerns about the accuracy in the Theranos labs. Tyler Schultz is the grandson of George Schultz, who is a former Secretary of State and was a member of the board at Theranos. Tyler, 23 years old, right out of Stanford, was captivated by Elizabeth Holmes's vision, but he left the company after eight months. He had concerns about falsified research and quality control failings of the equipment. He spoke to lab management, to the CFO, and to Ms. Holmes first, but eventually quit and spoke to state regulators and a Wall Street Journal reporter. As a result, he was harassed and intimidated by Theranos' legal team, who had deep pockets, and accused him of revealing trade secrets. The legal proceedings brought against Tyler cost him and his parents over $400,000 over a four-month time. His colleague, Erica Chung, a junior lab associate fresh out of Berkeley, also found the Theranos technology produced variable and inaccurate results. She raised concerns, but was told to just delete the outlying data points and to begin processing patient samples. That's when she quit. Theranos also harassed 
and surveilled her, so she consulted a lawyer who told her to file a complaint with the state regulating agency for laboratories. She did and included evidence in her complaint. Then she moved to Hong Kong to get away from Theranos. Miss Chung was from a family of modest means and didn't have the resources to stand up to Theranos like Tyler Schultz did. So in a company of 800 employees, we've got two 24-year-olds who stand up and say, excuse me, the emperor is not wearing any clothes. They could have just quit and silently slid away like a lot of employees did. Theranos had a very high turnover rate, but they sounded the alarm and they both paid a personal and financial price. So that's the background. Mike, what strikes you about this story? And then I'm going to ask Kelly the same question. Well, thanks, Marna. Um, this, I tell you, has captured the imagination of so many people, certainly do also to the limited series that was produced on it. But it is pretty remarkable to me uh, that these two young people had the, the gumption and the, um, the sense of self, the courage, dare I say, to go up against this company because um, it's hard to imagine if we were to turn the clock back five years ago what the whole world was thinking about Theranos and um, maybe longer than that, six, eight years ago, because it was supposed to be the thing that was going to, you know, fix the American healthcare crisis in a lot of ways. These two got into that company at a very junior level and they realized that this was a sham and they had the they had the gumption to to do something about it. I think it's interesting to compare what they did, uh, which was, you know, open their mouths and and um, speak truth to power. And you compare that to, unfortunately, what happened to Ian Gibbons, who was the chief scientist who committed suicide uh, the night before he was supposed to be uh, deposed in a legal proceeding regarding the company. I think it speaks to the fact that sometimes the most effective whistleblowers are young people who do not have significant commitments. Sometimes people who've been with companies a long time or further along in their careers, they have commitments that they just can't set aside in order to be that squeaky wheel. So it's an interesting comparison between the two. I think any whistleblower needs to look, or any potential whistleblower needs to look very closely at the primary question here, which is, you know, is is what's going on unethical? Are people being hurt? Is the law being broken? And then, you know, have to chart their own path. Lots to talk about there, Marta. I'm sorry, I wondered. (laughs) Well, what's really amazing about uh, Tyler Schultz is that he faced significant pressure from his own parents and his grandfather. And he stood up to all of that. I think that's just amazing. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's remarkable. I mean, the courage on his part was significant because he literally, he not only broke his ties with Theranos in a very dramatic way, but he also broke his ties with his grandfather for a period of time. And this wasn't just any grandfather. This was a very public figure. Yes, his grandfather does not come across very well in this story at all. What was going on there? Was he so captivated by Elizabeth Holmes? Well, that is one thing that uh, Tyler Schultz has said. You know, either his grandfather had lost it. We're speaking of George Schultz, former Secretary of State, um, lost his ability to discern what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, or he was um, infatuated with Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, it's kind of like she put a big old voodoo spell on some people. She had that effect with her convictions and her vision. Kelly, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, this was just a horrible situation. This was a bad place led by really bad, greedy people. Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani weren't amoral. They really were just evil, self-centered, greedy people. The way they ran the company was, I mean, lacked any compliance, any adherence to law or regulations. They treated their people horribly, and particularly when people raised legitimate issues, which in a healthy corporation, that's welcomed, uh, and it should be welcomed. So all these folks were just in a terrible situation. Tyler Schultz got his job through his grandfather. You know, his grandfather was approached by Elizabeth Holmes, as were a number of prominent people. And, you know, somehow she sold them on, you know, this idea of using this, you know, just a pinprick of blood to run, you know, I've read over 300 tests. And, you know, he was captured by her or her spell or whatnot. And then he mentioned, you know, his his grandson had been a biology major at Stanford and, you know, asked if he might be able to work there. And that's how Tyler got his job there. It's super difficult. I mean, I think what I see from looking at this, and this is also my prejudice, but even Erica Chung said she spoke fairly recently within the last year at a conference, and she said if she had it to do over again, she would have hired a lawyer immediately early on uh, to handle and manage everything for her instead of trying to go it alone. And she could have done that even without money because of, you know, whistleblower protections, and there are lawyers who specialize um, in whistleblower cases. They're also known as key TAM, um, which is, you know, a whistleblower provision of the False Claims Act. Um, it allows an individual um, or a non-government organization to file a lawsuit in federal court on behalf of the of the United States government. Um, and the idea is that they step into the shoes of the government and represent the public. Um, so that could have been pursued, but again, they were so young, and and it was just terrible. They were being followed. Um, Theranos um, hired private investigators. I mean, what happened here, if you read it, you wouldn't believe it. It's so nuts. And Oh, yeah, I did read and it. And that may be it what happened. intimidation tactics of the highest order. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that may be what happened to um, George Schultz. He might have, his grandson might have come to him and, and he might have been like, you're crazy. This stuff can't be happening. This sounds like something out of a crazy movie. But it was true. Absolutely true. You know, what's shocking to me is that neither one of these people are still in jail. They're not in jail. I mean, this whole thing fell apart in 2015. It's 2023. Elizabeth Holmes is a month shy of being told to report to jail, but it is on appeal. She's been told to report. She has a date. But believe me, she'll somehow get out of the country or something will happen. She is considered a flight risk because her husband is quite wealthy and she has two small children. Yeah, a baby and a isn't toddler. that ironic? How she somehow fell yeah. <laughs> in love with somebody with the deepest pockets in the world, and isn't it ironic how she got pregnant right before the first trial, and then it had to be delayed for months and months, and and then right around her sentencing, she was pregnant again, and and now she's saying she has young children. I mean, 
it's just... It all seems very strategic, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And this is really a an evil person. I have a quote here from Tyler's interviews, which is on YouTube, and I'll post all the links. When he was raising concerns about uh, quality control in the labs, one of the things that the president, Balwani, said to him was that he was arrogant, ignorant, patronizing, reckless, with no understanding of math, science, or statistics. And if he'd had any other last name, he'd already been held accountable to the highest extent. So that's what happened to Tyler from the president when he raised concerns about the accuracy of the lab. That's pretty rough. Yeah, you talk about a culture of fear and secrecy, you know, which is uh, present in, you know, most bad companies. And boy, it was there in spades with Theranos. And just to loop back to something we were talking about earlier, I mean, we've mentioned George Schultz and his family. Elizabeth Holmes pulled the wool over the eyes of so many sophisticated investors. I mean, if you go down the list of people who invested enormous sums of money in this company, they're top notch. I mean, they have the, the reason they have hundreds of millions of dollars to invest is that they've done really well with other companies. So she had this ability to really fool people. She exploited that, and then she she just rode that for a matter of, what, 12, 13 years. Yeah. Uh, one of my questions, maybe you know this, Kelly, if you're on the board of directors, does that mean you own considerable stock in the company? Generally, you probably do, but not always. You're compensated for being on the board. I, I think you can be compensated with stock, but generally people on board of directors are prominent in that field, knowledgeable, and you know, but they have a governance duty and they have a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. And we've seen in many corporations where they fall down on the job in this regard um, and they don't stand up to the CEO or the CFO when they should and, you know, call them out on things. It's a tough situation, but they ultimately they have a duty to the shareholders. So they should be acting accordingly. One of the things I found out last night as I was finishing up this research is Senator Frist was on the board. He was my senator when we lived in Tennessee. Right. He was and a physician. He's a physician. He was a physician. He's a cardiologist. Yeah. Yeah, And he was really the only one on the board, I thought, who had any medical health, blood science background at all. But you never hear a thing that he said. And he's the one who specialized in health. Yeah, you know, there's this term in uh, Silicon Valley and, you know, elsewhere in the, the startup world, vanity boards, where they fill the boards with people who are not experts in that field, who really don't bring any special talent to running that company or oversight of that company. They just fill it with famous people. Um, and that's generally an effort to increase the number of investors and get more capital to be able to work with. Because investors look at that board and go, oh, well, yeah, they must, uh, you know, that's a very famous person. They must know what they're doing. And then they often are convinced to pour more money into an enterprise. So Theranos took that to a new level. Yeah, they did. I think today things are a little bit better and I would disagree that you have to have a background in that field. You certainly should have some people on the board that do, but I also think strong business women and men, you know, that's good enough. I mean, ultimately, you have to understand 
how to conduct business right, and right. how a healthy corporation should be run, what your obligations are as a member of the board. It's really not that complicated. Somehow it became very complicated here because you had really bad people. And I think a lot of people, to their credit, see the good in people. They don't believe they're being flat out lied to. And, and they were. They were just being flat out lied to. You know, and I really, what I was going to say, Martin, is the book you spoke about, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup by John Carreyrou. I mean, it is a great book. I really encourage people to read it. I I picked it up just on audio, um, just when I was walking to keep me you know, just sort of occupied and I couldn't put it down. You know, I was walking around the house listening to it. I was cooking. I was, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. Yeah. It was, I know. I did the same thing. I've listened to it, read it. Twice. It was wow. so detailed. Wow. It was really, really good. And, and also, in some ways, the content, the true story was like a crazy soap opera. Mm-hmm. It was so nuts that it was engaging because it was like fiction. It was. It was beautifully written, too. Kelly, do you think that the board did their due diligence in this case? No, they didn't. But I am not familiar with what was brought to the board's attention as a whole. I just don't know what what came to their attention. People were so afraid. I know ultimately Tyler spoke with his grandfather, but I don't know that he ever sent detailed information to the board. I know he spoke with Holmes. He... Uh, you know, and then he ultimately went to the New York State regulators. I, of course, he spoke to Kerry Rue from the Wall Street Journal, and that was really the catalyst to bring down Theranos. But I can't say that the board completely dropped the ball because I feel like they were just being lied to. I mean, these are brilliant people Henry Kissinger, George Schultz. Frist. Mattis, I think, I don't know if he's on the board, but he, he was... He was on the board. Was mm-hmm. he being brought in? You know, they're great at asking the right questions and asking follow-up questions and digging deep. And I just wasn't seeing that in the book at all. So did they just accept everything Theranos gave them at face value? Yeah, and I, I don't think you can overlook the the fact that Balwani and Holmes had developed a system by which they could lie to a lot of people. And, you know, take, for example, Walgreens. You know, Walgreens invested millions and millions of dollars into uh, taking this technology out to the public through their drugstore chain. They fooled those guys. Those, you know, they, that's another company with its own infrastructure, its own board. And they made a decision to go with this and put a whole lot of money behind it. Their ability to fool people was was legion. They were changing the statistics. They were changing the data points. They were manipulating everything. They made people believe that they, they were running these lab tests when they had a separate secret lab with just typical commercially available blood testing machines that they were running tests on. I mean, the whole thing was just fraud and You know, when you're being lied to constantly, which I think was happening with the board, I'm not sure how they're supposed to figure that out. I mean, most of the time when boards are assailed and criticized, you know, everything was in front of them, but they decided to back their buddy. You know, they decided to go along to get along. I'm not sure that that's the case here. 
Well, I think uh, in George Schultz's case, he truly believed that this device was going to revolutionize health care. And it took him a long time to be disabused of that notion. And he did sadly not believe his grandson. He did, you know, his grandson brought stuff to him and he decided to believe, you know, who he thought were the grown-ups in the room and who all his peers were supporting. He decided to go with them. And part of it is, in his defense, you know, I'm sure he viewed Tyler as a child. I mean, he was his grandson, you know, his view of him, you know, and he was very young at the time, you know, 22 and 23. I don't know. I'm not trying to defend Schultz, but I guess I am a little bit. Well, interestingly, Tyler Schultz said in this interview on YouTube that his grandfather always said, you can't love your job too much. Otherwise, you'll do things you wouldn't ordinarily do in order to keep your job. You should always be willing to quit your job. That was advice from Grandfather Schultz to his grandson, Tyler. And that's exactly what Tyler Schultz did. Yeah, but you know, like so many times in life, people can say the right words, but they have a really hard time applying it to their own behavior. I mean, it's just, I think that's a, that's a fact of human nature. Uh, we often see fault in others, but we don't see fault in ourselves. So that's a that's a bias, right? Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah, right, right. Mike Tyson yeah, says. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I also think it's interesting that the way this, you know, the way that Theranos finally was brought to heel was through a very, very simple and um, somewhat overlooked government agency, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid services. I think it was Erica Chung had the the thought that let's just go to these guys. This is their job. Her free attorney. Right. That she she yeah. uh, talked to because she couldn't afford an attorney. Yeah. Let's just go to these case. guys. That's what they do. That's their job. And they're they're very they're very slow moving and they're not fancy and um, and the way that's depicted in at least in the the miniseries uh, is is pretty pretty amazing. You know, this guy comes to the front door and says, "Well, we're giving you money to do this lab work. Uh, we we have every right to look at your lab. Please open your lab." They'd never opened their lab to anybody else. And this uh, this inspector comes in from a unknown government agency. So it's interesting, you know, when you talk about whistleblowers. There generally is some agency, some government agency, some law out there that you can leverage to begin to look at the problem that you are facing or perhaps even solve it or at least blow the whistle, so to speak, and shut them down. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't that difficult. This is basically a medical device. The FDA, for the most part, oversees uh, medical devices. They approve them. They look at how they're manufactured. They look at how they're packaged, labeled. They look at advertising. That became an issue for them. They look at provider relationships. Uh, they look at quality. So uh, I think it might have been the FDA that came out, but it certainly does flow down to CMS because you know of insurance coverage and, and mm -hmm. you're getting government funds involved. But they just ignored all that. I mean, the FDA is constantly monitoring things. They go out to sites. They, they go look at manufacturing. They oversee everything. So I'm not sure how they ducked that. I, I think that these two were so young, you know, had they gotten an attorney who is experienced in whistleblower cases, this thing could have been filed and it would have blown, you know, it just would have blown the doors off it. Um, 
And then I'm not sure about the harassment, the private investigators. I mean, that could have been brought to the court's attention. Also, when you're a whistleblower, you're awarded a mandatory sum from you know, the court's judgment. It can be between 15 to 30% of the collected proceeds. Uh, so it's a, it's a lot of money. I mean, billions and billions of dollars have been recovered through whistleblower claims. Wow. Well, that's my next point. Whenever I read stories like this, with brave people who came forward, it makes me question whether I would have the courage to do that, if I would notice it and step forward, and also the extent to which I would do it. Like, you can just quit and walk away from an unethical place? Or do you report it and do the right thing and go further than just quitting? Yeah, that's a great question, Marna. I mean, I look back at my own life, and, um, you know, one situation in particular jumps out at me when I was in a, a, let's just call it a culture of fear and secrecy, which had been established. You know, I look back at how I handled that, and I I'm not really proud of the way in which I handled it because I just felt like, okay, the larger mission that we're doing here is more important and I'm going to put up with the bad behavior, if you will, that clearly is present in this organization. Somebody else thought differently and they came forward and it ended up that the guy we were all working for was called to task on on his failings. Again, it's really easy to sit back and look at these sorts of situations and say, oh, I would have done something. But uh, again, looking at myself, you know, I didn't measure up in that case. True confessions today. Yeah, and I think Erica Chung has some similar uh, regrets that she didn't come forward earlier yeah. Yeah. as well. Tyler had $400,000 in legal fees. I think his parents came close to selling their house in right. order to pay mm-hmm. the fees. It may be prohibitive for other people to do that. Can you afford to tell the truth? It's a great question. Again, that's, you know, it echoes what I said earlier. Sometimes long, young people have the, the flexibility. The, they, they're not hamstrung by, by the commitments of life, and they can, they can set all that aside, and they can go after something they feel is right out of conviction. Again, the comparison between our two whistleblowers and Ian Gibbons. It's interesting to, to look at those three people and compare their different roles and their different actions. What happened with Ian Gibbons is a crime. I mean, it's an absolute crime. And if the jury had heard about that, they couldn't even have given either Elizabeth Holmes or Sonny Balwani a fair trial. After he committed suicide, they had their attorneys send letters to his wife threatening to sue her if she spoke about the company on numerous occasions. They never, ever sent her any condolence The man worked for the company for 10 years. He had numerous patents with Holmes in support of the company. I mean, their behavior. That's shameful. I mean, it's just, I don't even know what to say. I mean, to say it's a disgrace really doesn't do it justice. I mean, who on God's earth would harass a woman who lost her husband to suicide that worked for your company? I mean, who would do that? They were in so deep by that point, Kelly. I mean, they were doing this to everybody. So they did that to her, but they also defrauded all their investors. Bad behavior was their norm. It just played out in different ways. Yeah, I mean, what's really, from my perspective as an attorney, what's also disgraceful is that they were able to hire attorneys that would support this behavior. I mean, as an attorney, obviously, defending criminal defendants that do horrible things that is your job. I mean, your job is to protect and defend the Constitution and individual rights. 
and you absolutely, if you're hired and agree to serve as someone's attorney, should make every effort to defend them and make the prosecution prove their case. That is completely different than accepting a retainer and a great deal of money to harass individuals when the basis in law is dubious at best. There's a lot of blame to go around here when it comes yeah, to ethics. Yeah, you know, I wondered the same thing. Yeah, I mean, you, as an attorney, you really, it, it's it's really shaky. I mean, this is very questionable behavior by a very prominent firm and a very prominent attorney who has gotten himself involved in some very ethically shaky things. You know, and I hate to say it, but it's in pursuit of the almighty dollar. Billable hours. Now, you both have mentioned ways that people of modest means, when they uncover nefarious behavior, what they can do if they don't have money like Tyler Schultz did. Kelly, you mentioned going to agencies who will file on behalf of them. Also, there's a free attorney legal service, which is what Erica Chung used. There's an organization called the National Whistleblower Center, which can be contacted. They have all sorts of resources. Uh, they can make referrals. They can, you know, I think provide support as far as providing information, you know, and they also probably, I think, can put you in touch with other whistleblowers. Obviously, Erica Chung might be able to be contact contacted. She has a, an organization called Ethics and Entrepreneurship that she is now leading. Uh, so I think resources might be available through her. And we will post links to both of those organizations. And also, Mike, you said go the route of reporting it to the state regulatory agency that has oversight of that. Somebody in our government that's in their bailiwick, that's in their portfolio, may take some time to figure out who exactly that is and get a hold of them. But somebody out there has responsibility for that. Oh, yeah. And I don't think it's that hard to figure it out. I mean, <laughs> you're talking about, you know, in some ways, a medical device company. I mean, Tyler Schultz figured it out. He contacted the New York State regulators. They got mm -hmm. on it. And, and that really worked. But, you know, again, also, you know, there's the False Claims Act that you can pursue. There's the FDA. I mean, the FDA would have jumped in. I mean, they're pretty darn aggressive. Thank goodness when it comes to oversight, that would have been another another route to take. And then there's the press, and uh, that the press had a role here. And uh, if you can get a hold of a journalist who will hear your story and then put some time into it, that may be a way to go also. Sure blew it wide open in this case. Yeah. Um, back to the state regulatory agencies, just real quickly, follow up with them too, because in this book, Bad Blood, it seems like the complaint got dropped in a drawer and was not tended to for a long time until somebody followed up on it. Somebody called and said, hey, yeah, what about that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. sort of the government, right? <laughs> so follow up. Yeah. If you don't yeah. hear anything, follow up. Be a squeaky wheel. Also, a lesson learned from this book, trust your gut. There were people in the cast of characters in this book who kept going, now wait a minute, this doesn't seem right. The Walgreens guy who said, they're not showing us their labs. They're not being straightforward with us. He kept getting shot down, but eventually he relented. But if he had kept trusting his gut. Yeah, I mean, he didn't have a good structure in place and he didn't have good people around him because a strong company does complete due diligence. And if material's not provided, thank you very much. We're moving on. Exactly. We don't do business with companies that don't provide everything and give us a chance to do our due diligence, period. Bye-bye. Yeah. Good points. Yes. And speaking of due diligence, if you do feel like you want to 
blow the whistle or report it to the state agency. Make sure, as we used to say in the Army, make sure you have your duckies in a row. Make sure you have the documentation and evidence to back up your claims. Yeah, good words, good thoughts. It's, it's hard. Again, back to where we began this. It requires courage. It requires conviction. And you got to set yourself aside for a larger purpose. Also in Erica Chung's TED Talk on making ethical decisions, I'll post the link. She lists the three C's, and this is from University of California, San Diego framework for making ethical decisions. The first one is commitment or the desire to do the right thing regardless of the consequences and knowing there may be consequences when you head into it is very important. The second C is consciousness or the awareness to act consistently and apply moral convictions to daily behavior. The third C is competency or the ability to collect and evaluate information and foresee potential consequences and risks. And she, as a personal aside there, she said, I could trust my competency because I was acting in service to others, meaning the patients whose blood she was testing. She felt it wasn't fair to them to be possibly subjected to incorrect lab results. So three C's, commitment, consciousness, and competency. Yeah, and I also think, and of course, I'm not sure you're in a position to do this when you're very young and it's your first job, but I also think, especially in today's environment where a lot of people are looking for good employees, you should vet the company that you're looking to be hired by. What are their policies and procedures? Do they have a code of conduct? You know, what is their compliance culture? What is their corporate culture? All that stuff should really be looked at. You should do research. You should ask questions during your interview process. You should really look at that company and say, you know, is this reflective of my values? Do I want to work for this company? Oh, for sure. That's excellent advice, Kelly. It's not easy to do. We know when you're excited and somebody wants you and you want a job, you're like, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, sometimes economic reality comes uh, comes in between that idealism. I totally get it, and I yeah, agree. Yeah. And- I'm just saying it. And and really for, for Tyler and Erica, they were so young. This is a great opportunity. These startups can be incredible opportunities for people. I mean, truly, they can be life-changing because if you get in on the sort of ground floor, you could make a fortune. You look at Apple, uh, look at Facebook, just with stock, et cetera. But in like today's environment, I think most of us would have the opportunity to to look at and vet the company and its culture, particularly with regard to ethics. They mentioned often in this book, Glassdoor, where employees talk about their experience at companies. Oh, I've not heard of that. Glassdoor.com, employee reviews, and apparently there were some scathing reviews about working at Theranos. So They had incredible turnover, so that's another sign, you know. And it is hard to, to retain people and you know, like nowadays, people jump around a lot. Yes, when you see that kind of turnover and you see those kind of reviews, that's a big red flag. It's a red flag, even if you call it pink. It's red. Yeah, and that just kind of uh, is another it, another indicator was the fact that they had such a robust security apparatus and such a robust legal team. Those are not particularly good signs. Yeah. In one instance, Tyler's parents had an attorney and the parents met with the attorney. And right after their meeting, the attorney's car was broken into and the briefcase containing the notes from the meeting was stolen. Coincidence? Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's intimidation tactics. Just talking about people that are criminals. I mean, <laughs> that's, 
that, let's just call a spade a spade. They were yeah. criminals. That's what we're talking about here. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a robust legal department. <laughs> my, you know, my prejudice. <laughs> okay, because, all right, Kelly. <laughs> because that, you know, that department could be supporting, you know, the code of conduct and compliant behavior, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. treating employees right and doing the right thing. But in this case, they were used really for evil. Okay. I stand corrected, Kelly. Sorry. Any further thoughts from either one of you on this? No, pretty ambitious of us, though, Marna, I tell you. It was ambitious. This is is not our normal thing here. I know. It took a lot of research to get Mm. here, didn't it? I just, I really hope that Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani experience the consequences of their behavior. Thus far, they haven't. And it's so many years out. It's very disappointing, especially for me, my perspective as an attorney. You want the justice system to be fair, and treat everyone the same. And it doesn't. It really doesn't. If these two were African American or, you know, lower class, it's really more about how much money you have. They would have been in jail long ago. Mm -hmm. And there's something the matter with that. Yeah. There is something the matter with that. Now, I know this is a big national case, but I want to tell you my own family, we had a similar case where my uncle was, was working for a company and He was told to keep two sets of books, one for the IRS and another book with all the correct accounting ledgers. And my uncle refused. And so he was then fired. And it was a a six-figure job, which he was fired from. He had a family. He had a home. He had a mortgage, children. And uh, fortunately, he was able to get another job fairly quickly. Not as well-paying, but it has a downside. That's a lot of courage. He probably sleeps well at night. Yeah. Yeah, and he's not in jail. Because ultimately, had something happened, if they were found out, he would have been criminally responsible. It did take incredible courage, but I'm just saying he also just was like, hey, I'm not going to commit a crime. I'm leaving. Can I ask a couple of questions? Did he contact the IRS and, and turn them in? I don't believe so. Did anything ever happen to the company that he heard? I don't know if anything happened to it. I don't think so. I think it's still in existence. Well, again, he's, he's worthy of our admiration. How can we be an ethical and truthful society? I think you've given us some good suggestions in this podcast that there's infrastructure out there and we can be supported. Yeah, there definitely is, but it doesn't make it easy. Yeah, requires courage. Sure does. That's going to be it for us today. Email us at inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com or go to our website, ethicsandetiquette.com. Our Instagram handle is at ethicsetiquette. If you want to support what we're doing, subscribe to our podcast and leave a positive review while you're there. And thanks for recommending Ethics and Etiquette to your friends and family. For Kelly Halligan Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Thanks for joining us today. New episodes are posted on the first and third Wednesdays of the month. See you then.